Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Julianne Moore dances through Boogie Nights with Hannibal. and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I'm for some reason going to say the term okie-dokie several times. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm a bright shining star. Or as you young kids might prefer me to say it, I'm a bright shining star! I'm a star! Yeah, and I'm also going to refer to your mother and father as your mommy and daddy. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Yeah. This is what we need more of. <laughs> For sure. Mommies and daddies is the internet loves. Uh, but welcome, everybody, to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, in which uh, every week Adam and I cover a good and a bad movie related to a particular topic. And uh, this topic we decided to do here, uh, it wasn't just decided on by us. Uh, shout out to our patrons, patreon.com slash dedbpod. More on our patrons later in the show. Um, they voted in a poll uh, between two choices. Uh, it was between post-apocalyptic films and the ultimate winner, uh, Julianne Moore, because uh, she has a couple movies that are coming out. Uh, Sharper, which is on Apple TV+. And uh, when you finish Saving the World, which is going to be in like a limited release, the, I believe, directorial debut of Jesse Eisenberg that premiered at Sundance last year. And it's her and uh, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. But uh, yeah, we decided to, you know, have Julianne Moore on the docket because we've all, we always like covering, you know, an actor's career and particularly with Julianne Moore, one of the best actresses working today, I would say. Uh, she's been doing it for, you know, now like over 30 years and uh, she's always been a like, consistent great talent. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with the consistent great talent. I think sometimes she maybe takes roles that we're probably going to talk about tonight uh, several times that don't necessarily work for her, but they you know paycheck roles, so she can do she can do her smaller stuff. It's usually the sort of smaller intimate pieces that she really really fucking shines in. Right, but I would say she kind of fits along with another person we'd vote an episode to, Natalie Portman, where even her bad yeah. performances she makes choices, not always the yeah. right choices, yeah. but big choices yeah yeah no there's always a choice made i would say she never really phones it in it's just sometimes it uh, well this is different yeah and she also like sometimes it's dependent on the material like i would say the first time i ever saw her in anything given my age bracket and everything was definitely lost world jurassic park which is not a movie that services her very well at all <laughs> whatsoever no it, it doesn't i'm trying to think if that's the first thing i've seen her in as well um well, I think we Probably technically not. covered one that you just unconsciously, I don't think, were aware of her at the time with uh, The Fugitive, given that was like 90 Oh, yeah, for sure. But that's such yeah. a small performance. The first thing I really took notice of her in was uh, Nine Months and then followed up quickly by Assassins, actually. Yes. That's like 95, so that makes sense. Yeah. It's like right before. Yeah, but I get that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but I would say, like, after, like, my introduction to her in Lost World, she quickly became somebody, as I was starting to get more and more into, like, movies, especially award season stuff, 
where she was somebody who was like, oh, she is like a big actress who's like not just like in a lot of things, but also like she is a great actress in general. And I mean, the receipts prove it given now I have here listed all for Oscar nominations, which interestingly, I've recently either rewatched or watched for the first time all of these movies she was nominated for. Big shocker. Uh, last week or so. Big shocker. <laughs> I, I go deep for research. Um, but uh, she was first nominated for Boogie Nights, which is one of our subjects today. We'll go into that a bit more later. But then in 2000, she was nominated for The End of the Affair, uh, which is kind of like a very typical Oscar movie she's very good in. But it's just kind of like a, whatever. I get why that's been forgotten to time. <laughs> it's like an yeah, Oscar I've never, movie from around. I've never even... Yeah, I've never seen it's, it. It's her and Ray Fiennes having an affair in World War II. Uh, yep, still don't remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. And then, interestingly, 2003, she was nominated in twice in the same Oscar year for Best Actress for Far From Heaven and Best Supporting Actress for The Hours. And she's only one of 12 actors to be nominated twice within the same Oscar year, which that club includes uh, Faye Brainer, Teresa Wright, Barry Fitzgerald, Jessica Lange, Sigourney Weaver, Al Pacino, Holly Hunter, Emma Thompson, Jamie Foxx, Kate Blanchett, and Scarlett Johansson. Took about four of those until I realized who the hell you were talking about. But, yeah, okay. Yeah, right, true, yeah. <laughs> in terms of memorable names, yes, I get that. Yeah. Uh, and then in 2015, she was nominated and won, finally, for the first time, for Still Alice, which yeah. um, was not one of my Double Redo choices, but I did watch it for the first time in prep for the show. And uh, it's not one of those like oh like late career like oh she like later in a career you earned this Oscar kind of thing for just the amount of times you've been nominated. It's a genuinely great, upsetting, beautiful oh, performance from her. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a rough one. It's a rough one. But I think probably the biggest detriment to her, and I hate to word it that way, is that she really has a hard time pronouncing the word truck, <laughs> especially singing it and pronouncing yeah. it at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, uh, dear Evan Hansen, once again choices she made a choice there how to sing that um yep. but but yeah and i think like that even the amount of those oscary movies that she's done i think it's, it's a great example where like some people like we've talked about like meryl streep on the show where there'll be there were points in her career where it just felt like oh she's doing like a very sort of a typical meryl streep performance and just got nominated for it as opposed to all of those performances of hers, having seen them all, at least have some wonderful like moments or like true realization of a character. She feels like she really lives in these kind of characters that she portrays in all these different movies. Not a lot of Iron Lady performances. No, I would say definitely not Iron Lady type of performances. Um, More but... Ricky and the Flash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish Rick Springfield was in one of these other movies with her too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're going to go ahead and go into our movies now, though, uh, which we picked at the end of our last episode, uh, and we ended up with, uh, your good pick, Adam, of Boogie Nights, and then we'll go into, uh, my bad pick of Hannibal. So a lot to discuss with both of those movies, uh, so let's go ahead and dive in with Boogie Nights. In 1977, a kid from nowhere made me think about your name. My name, yeah. Something a little pizzazz. Dirk Diggler. Good name. I like your name a lot. Had a dream of getting somewhere. Jack Horner has found something special in newcomer Dirk Diggler. It was a time when disco was king. These are the ones. These are great. Yeah, those are really cool. Are they lizard? No, they're Italian. Sex was safe. <laughs> Pleasure was a business. Cut. Terrific. Nice work. And business was booming. And the award goes to Mr. Dirk 
So Boogie Nights came out uh, October 10th, 1997 from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson. This is only his second film after Heart 8, but this was definitely the movie that kind of put him on the map. Uh, given, you know, it got a lot of acclaim, uh, made a pretty solid amount of money, and it was nominated for three Oscars at the time, uh, Best Supporting Actor for Burt Reynolds, uh, Best Original Screenplay, and of course, Miss Moore was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and uh, this is a movie that, you know, takes place in the porn world of, like, the late 70s into the early 80s, kind of uh, marks sort of transition point for uh, porn at this time in a post-Deep Throat world. There was initially a point where porn almost felt like, oh, it's going to be a bit more mainstream and opened up, and then that quickly crashed and burned and became more of like the on-tape porn that became so much more, uh, you know, of a factor and like increased distribution and kind of, uh, you know, in the eyes of a Burt Reynolds tainted the purity to a certain degree of uh, the porn film industry. But this was a cable staple. This was a movie I, like my dad loves and was definitely the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie I saw. But uh, Adam... Why do you want to have it as our good pick? I mean, quite a few reasons. I, a, I'm really fascinated by 70s era porn, especially with sort of where, you know, celebrities were going to go, were going to see, you know, Deep Throat and things like that. And it was getting this huge acclaim. Uh, if you've never seen the documentary Inside Deep Throat narrated by Dennis Hopper, I strongly suggest it. It's a great documentary. But I was really, I'm fascinated by it and like how this kind of crazy like during the you know the 70s and the drug explosion and sort of sexual awakeness that it almost became just like an open not necessarily open secret but like people watched porn people enjoyed porn and then it quickly got shut down you know with like sort of the turn of the 80s and you know videotapes but also sort of like political administration at the time and things like that so i find the backstory kind of interesting i also am very fascinated by like John Holmes and Dirk Diggler is very much a John Holmes-esque type personality. And Burt Reynolds, great performance. One of the top three Mark Wahlberg performances, but also probably maybe Heather Graham's best. Like there's a lot of career defining best performances in this. And it's funny, as great as Julianne Moore is in this, it's still not her best, I would say. But it's anytime she's on screen, you have just this utter just sympathy and like just you feel so bad for her character like to the point with you know yeah her kids she can't see her kids and she wants them and of course the court looks bad because she's in the sex industry and all that but she's also a drug addict and a drunk and she just doesn't know where she fits in in the world she's an aging porn starlet and it's it's really sort of a layered nuance just ultimately sad performance and character but she does so much with it and it's just it's and it's very subtle, except for the big, you know, scene with her and Heather Graham, especially where they're all drugged up. But it's just a really, really great performance from a from a female lead like this. I I would say this is probably I mean, obviously, this was her first nomination or whatever, but I'd say this is 100 percent. You're watching a career making performance. 
That's true. Yeah, she had done earlier very good performances. Like, this is a couple of years removed from Todd Haynes' Safe, which I recently watched right. as well. as a great performance from her in that movie. But uh, this definitely feels like I agree with you in terms of, like, putting her on the map, necessarily. Um, like, which was, this is the same year, ironically, as Lost World. So, like, the Oscar crowd's getting her in this, and the big blockbuster folks are seeing her in the other movie. So this definitely feels like this is the year where she truly, like, expanded into, like, the name actress kind of category. And I think the thing is, as great as she is, it is a weird thing where this whole cast in general is amazing. Like, there is, it's a great example of the sort of actor mantra of there is no small part because everybody makes a massive impression no matter how small their role is. Where you got, like we mentioned, Reynolds and Wahlberg and Heather Graham and so many other people, but then you got Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Louise Guzman, Philip Baker Hall, Thomas Jane. Uh, the fucking Alfred Molina's amazing one-scene performance. Everybody makes the most of, like, whatever character there is. And I think Anderson does a great job with not only, like, writing out all these characters to where every single side character has an interesting little story we get glimpses of, but even the way that he shoots the movie with, like, the big tracking shots. This is one of the great examples to me of, like, where a tracking shot isn't just done to be showy. It actually tells you the story of all these characters. And it's interesting, not because of the technical craft of it. Like, I think some directors like rely too much on <coughs> in a <ritu. coughs> um but i think anderson knows how to use the camera to actually tell the story of all these people and keep you invested so the craft actually has purpose to it yeah i agree but i also think the point of it being a little flashy is on purpose because of sort of the era it's showing in these parties filled with decadence and just sort of these crazy characters moving in and out of sort of the main narrative like i, I, right. I don't it works. It's it's sort of, you know, when the cinematography is used to push the narrative and, and works as sort of a storytelling device, another, instead of just, look how cool I could do this. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's really just beautifully shot. And by the way, the sort of soundtrack is just full of bangers. There are so many good needle drops in this movie. I mean, Nobody gave a shit about Sister Christian for a long time until this movie came out. It sort of brought that song back, and it's just, it works perfect. Or even right from the beginning, like, that, that amazing tracking shot at the beginning when, with Louise Guzman's club and everything said to Best of My Love is such yes, a great use of that fucking song. It instantly gets you into the atmosphere of the movie. And I love Luis Guzman, too, but the, I, I will say this might be with some of his best work, too. Uh, he's a great character actor. He's always a fun presence, but in this one, it, like... There's more depth to him than you usually get. Right, but also, like, it really honed the Louise Guzman kind of personality. Oh, for sure. Has been used Absolutely. To, especially the whole thing, anytime he talks to Julianne Moore about just, like, I'm a Latin lover, you know? I just have, you have to give me one of these movies. I'm going to be perfect for it. I know, it's like little short, stout Louise Guzman. It's great. Um, but yeah, to, to get sort of to the the sort of woman of the hour in this, I mean, there's several scenes in this that, are just sort of like incredible. Like obviously the drug sort of I'll be your mother scene with Heather Graham, incredible. The courtroom scene, fucking heartbreaking. But then the scene where she first is with Dirk Diggler on on set and you almost like, like obviously it's pleasuring her and she's enjoying it, but you almost get like, she's, it's more to it than that. Like it's sort of an understatement. Like she's not, necessarily falling in love with this kid as a lover, but as some, like someone she can like take care of and calls her baby and all that. Like it's really weird, but it's just, 
she's so great. And just sort of the reaction of everybody watching it happen, like Burt Reynolds and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, by the way, has some of the best sort of reaction shots ever in this movie. Like, he's just so into it and sweaty and, like, basically orgasming. Uh, it's just, it's really kind of, like I said, it's a career-defining, not career-defining, but a career-making performance. And it absolutely earns that. Like, it's not one where, you know, some people who get, like, all of a sudden they're a huge star because they were pretty good in something. And then, like, sort of the next movie, they keep defining stuff. Like, she went from being pretty good to, like, fucking what the fuck? She's masterful in this. And then, like you said, too, it also helps where you can watch this in the same year, this really great, nuanced, kind of disturbing, but sad, depressing performance, just rife with emotion and sadness to watching her in this giant, huge blockbuster acting, you know, with Jeff Goldblum and CGI dinosaurs. Not to say she's great in that, but she's fully capable of it. But you get the full range of what she can do in a span of two movies. Well, and even within this movie, like with that scene you're talking about, I think it's a great example of, like, one of the best ways you can tell how good an actor is, is by how well they can play bad acting. And in that scene where she does, like, the whole porn acting against Mark Wahlberg, like, her purposefully, like, bad porn acting there feels authentic. It doesn't feel like she's going too far into, like, oh, I can't, like, I don't really remember my lines or I'm going, like, too over the top. It's the perfect subtle amount of just, like, she doesn't have a lot of range as an actress within the movie. But only a great actor can pull that kind of thing off. And it's so, like, it's it's both funny and also kind of sad given, like, how she's so invested in this, but yet she's not that great of an actress at the same time. I just, I love that particular element. It works so perfectly for giving you more about that character who, like you mentioned, has so much nuance to where she's very motherly, but she has no structure because she's such, like, an addict. So she can't actually be either motherly to her actual son or to these sort of den children that she's uh, put around her, like Dirk and uh, Roller Girl. And I think there's like a real tragedy to that, where even when she's not on coke, she feels always sort of like in a distant haze to where it's almost implied like is she on like some kind of like downer pill when she's not on coke? Right, or she's a burnout, dude. Right. You know, she's just done so much that she's in a constant state of like, just sort of, if she's not stoned, she's sort of comatose. To me, you know, maybe take out the sort of sex aspect of it, but to me, Julianne Moore's character is like, I think most of us had them, where your buddy had like the cool mom, where you'd be able to yes. go over there and like drink and smoke in the basement, and like as long as you don't go anywhere. And you're like, at the time, you're like, dude, your mom's so cool. But when you get older, you're like, oh God, what the fuck? How awful. Like, just the worst parenting. And that's sort of the character, she, to me, she plays in this, you know, where she'd be the mom who would come and smoke a joint with the fucking 15-year-old kids hanging out in the basement. And then go upstairs, like, oh, you guys, just be safe. I mean, that type of shit. Right. I would I would at least give her the credit of she would probably hang out in the basement with them and supervise them, but just not very attentively. <laughs> I think that's the no, thing. Yeah, be no, she'd, around, yeah, she'd be down there drinking, she would... them. Be down there drinking right. with them, but still watching right. them. Right, which is right. way worse in a way. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Drawing straws. But, 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 but I mean, at the same time, there is still, like, a real sympathy you have for her. And especially with, like, the, the almost the hint that, like, she seems like she was also, like, maybe a previous version of a roller girl to Burt Reynolds. Yeah, she was a big star at one point. Like I said, she's sort of this aging 
porn starlet who is not necessarily in the limelight anymore. Right, and all that she's known is this life under Burt Reynolds' wing. Right, exactly. And yes, I will agree, she does do the best sort of porn acting in this. Yes. Mark Wahlberg, when he's doing it, just feels like it's Mark Wahlberg. Right, which I guess we should we should address more of the Wahlberg of it all, because um, <laughs> it's weird how like our post-show chats, at some point Mark Wahlberg will usually come up and you will be very, I think justifiably, uh, annoyed by his especially current presence. Uh, but... uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, well... I mean, just to get it out of the way, I, anybody who uses religion as excuse to cover up hate crimes, yay, yep. or to sort of uh, seek acceptance now for all the awful shit that came out about you, no, fuck you. And including Boogie Nights in that, where there was some event where he went out and was just like, I pray to that God's a movie fan, because hopefully he forgives me for my transgressions. It's like, oh, like what roles? He's like, Boogie Nights is pretty high on that list. Like, sure. Yeah, because right, it's a porn yeah. movie, sure, yeah, sure, Jan, your best, sure. Your best performance, you mean? Right. Uh, what I think works about him in this movie is the fact that, like, he is so incredibly well utilized when he's playing somebody who is, quite frankly, dumb. I was going to say, for and, a lack of a better term, dumb. Yes, and I think he works perfectly like this, or like sort of some of the comedy roles he would take later, like the other guys and some of the other uh-huh. things. Like, even, even the Ted movies, I think. They utilize him well as, like, you're a fucking idiot. Who doesn't right. know what he's doing. You're a hot idiot. That's what you are. Right. And especially at this point, it's utilizing his youth and his innocence really mm-hmm. well. Where, like, you see him initially as, like, a dishwasher boy. And he's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I come up here and I, I want to be, like, a part of the nightclub scene. And uh, it's like, oh, you're hiding something behind your pants there. Burt Reynolds is saying that to him. And it's like, um, you know, I, I, you want to see it? It's $10. <laughs> it's, a better, it's a better version of the Ryan Phillippe character from 54. Yes. Definitely. I think that movie's clearly inspired by a Boogie Nights in a lot of ways, that way in particular. Yes. You know, he's really good in this, but Wahlberg gets to act with some of the actors at the top of their game in this. Like we said, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, John C. Riley and him are such a fun duo. Yes, 100%. Like, they're so fun. Them doing the dumb, like, sort of porn action movie... Yes, um, is amazing. Like, that it. footage is so fucking funny. And it feels it's like so an early funny. precursor as well for Riley's comedy career. Because at this point, he was more in, like, some of the dramas. Like, he'd been in Hard Eight, and, like, he's going to do Magnolia right after this. But it feels like a precursor to, like, the Step Brothers and Talladega Nights kind of, like, comedic stuff he would become, honestly, known for to a lot of, like, younger audiences at this point. Right, because he's great at it. But the thing is, he's also just a brilliant character actor. Yes. Like I say, John C. Riley's so good. Like, watch this, watch Chicago, watch Gangs in New York. Watch some of these other, and you're like, whoa, that's a fucking John C. Riley? Like, yeah, he's really great. My, my favorite use of him is definitely, like, during the interview stuff where they're talking about, like, the making of this particular, like, porn they're doing, and he talks about violence, and so I'm just like, <clears throat> well, violence is, you know, it, it's something I think about a lot, and I think it's, like, really messed up that it does it, but I'm also pretty cool at karate, and, and stuff yeah, like that, and, and all is, like, very clearly, like, improvised, and it feels like an early example of, like, that kind of, the Judd apatow stuff he would do later, mm-hmm. where he's, like, improvising that, or the bit later on when they try and take the tapes, and he's just like, well, we need those tapes in order to get a record contract, and those tapes are technically your property, but the magic on them is ours. Oh, it's so bad, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to sound hyperbolic or nothing. it's so so good i love like the shoe shopping scene that turns into them wearing the same suits and they're dancing at the club like they they just build up this crazy friendship and bond these guys have just by finding each other at a weird party at a porn party basically right and then as like things get more decadent when they join up with thomas jane later it's just like all these two kids 
you don't need to be here. <laughs> Dirk makes him a star, basically, because they become right. friends. And he's like, oh, I want to use him. And, you know, the, and it's kind of a really sweet friendship. I mean, they go down dark roads, but you could tell like they really care about each other. I want to ask, who is your favorite sort of like of the side people? Because I would argue Reynolds, Moore, Graham, and Wahlberg are like the main four that we like see more of. But who would you say of like the various side characters is your favorite if you could narrow one down? Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say Melina because he was only in one scene, but probably the, my two favorite is either Buck, which is Don Cheadle, because uh, I just love his character where he's playing, you know, playing country music at the speaker store and all this. Well, crazy this is my shit. look. This is my look. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> oh, listen to that bass. You can really hear the twang. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, he's great. But William H. Macy is such like a tragic character in this. And he's so good. And you feel so bad for him. Like he's just constantly being cucked. And like against right. his will. Yeah, Which is know. an accurate term, everybody. Like that's like dumb internet speak, but it's literally what it is. Mm-hmm. And the woman playing the wife, Nina Hartley, who is also like an aging porn star, like she's really good in it too, just for her couple scenes. I mean, you you took my absolute favorite, which is Cheadle. I love him yeah, so, so much good. in this movie. That the whole journey and like eventually with like the donut shop thing and the mm-hmm. side relationship he has with that one woman and all this other stuff. Like he gets like weirdly the happiest ending, I would say, which is like he has his own business and it's like where it thriving. comes about some of the most crazy circumstances. But yeah, right. Yes, yeah, so, like, but um, I would say it like uh, the, I agree with you that like there's some this, but I think we should talk more about my. If I had a second favorite, it is definitely Hoffman. Hoffman so is so wonderful in this movie like the moment he shows up in his ill-fitting tank top is one of many ill-fitting clothing choices but when he looks around and a great example of the needle drop actually working for like the character and moving the story along where they play that um the you sexy thing song as he's looking at mark Wahlberg, instantly tells you everything about like oh this dude is like you know a repressed homosexual and such a tragedy for him and later on when he has the scene with mark Wahlberg where he kisses him and leads to such a beautiful, sad, but also kind of funny moment. It's just like, I'm a fucking idiot, man. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, no, Hoffman, well, Hoffman, that's the thing. He does so much with body language in this, too. Like I said, when he's watching him and sort of the the faces he's making, but even he's slowly, like, gyrating and moving his body and sweating and breathing heavily and it's so much without doing a whole lot it's it's really great or, or particularly the way that he picks up the cake at that wedding where like half of it falls off his plate and then he like eats part of it it's so weird uh but that, that one of the reasons that i didn't pick him which i do love his performances he makes me feel not uncomfortable but i'm just like i feel so awkward by this guy like i you just want him to like come out of his shell so bad so I just like, oh, poor guy. Oh, you poor guy. Oh, so, but I guess that's, a, I mean, Macy's sort of the same way. Although what happens with Macy is fucking insane too. Yeah. And it's like the great sort of like midway turning point of the movie with like that New Year's Eve 1980 party where this movie is very literally about like that transition from one era to the next and the pinpoint of William H. Macy just being cucked for the last time and going full psycho, killing two people and then himself, is instantaneously just like, oh, this is, like, everything's changing. Like, this is all, like, falling apart instantaneously. And, like, you get hints of, like, sort of that lack of communication earlier when everyone has sort of, like, that brash confidence. Like, I love one of my, probably my favorite comedic bit of the movie is Riley and Cheadle 
at the bar where they can't hear each other as he's doing the magic trick. And Cheadle talks about dark forces, which is amazing. But it represents also, like, it's a comedic moment that initially gives you that thing of, like, oh, they're all brash and nothing's going to fall apart, even though they can't communicate correctly. So then by the time that New Year's Eve party happens, that is the beginning of the downturn of everyone just having the brash confidence, but without anything to back it up. As, like, the porn industry changes and their coke habits fall apart and all it just, like, really crumbles around them. It's, just, it's such a great indicator of just, like, and everything's different now. Right from that point. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, this is definitely one of those, I remember, you know, so much attention was drawn to it because of the, obviously the nudity and the infamous, like, sort of dick shot that you get at the end. But I think this movie unfairly got sort of, I don't want to say crucified, but criticized because, oh, it's basically softcore porn. It's really not. It's really not. It's oddly a very sort of, like, tame treatment of sex where, like, there's nudity, but at the same time, it's treated as just more of like, oh, this is our job that we do. Right, exactly. It's all very clinical. Like, oh, you know, when they're doing, oh, I could flip her this way and I could still do this. And like, none of the sex and nudity in this movie is like erotic. Like, it's all very kind of uncomfortable. No, I think it does a great job of treating that, like, because obviously a lot of other movies would demonize sex work to any degree. And this is definitely a movie that doesn't do that. I think for, I would say like 99% of it, the only time I feel it kind of does is there's the bit where it's between, like, the sort the, the bang bus thing and the limo, and then Mark Wahlberg, like, basically, like, at his lowest point, jerking off in that car before he gets beat up. That's the one time where it veers, I think, dangerously toward that, which is not helped by my least favorite element of this movie, which I think is, like, nearly a perfect movie. As much as I love all the, like, actual soundtrack drops, I don't like any of the original music. I think the original music... No, I, yeah, it very, doesn't work. Yeah, especially I, that sequence is scored to like a weird bell toll music. It's just like, dun, dun, dun. And it's like, goes on for fucking ever. It's just like, I, I do not like that original score drop particularly there. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. Uh, it does toe the line of sort of, you know, well, look what he's become because of the sex industry. But is that really what it's saying? Or is it saying, look what he's become because he let himself get so out of control? You know, because they also, there's the courtroom scene where, because of what Julianne Moore does, she can't see her kid. Like, the drugs and stuff aren't, you know, that's part of it, but it, the main focus is that she's in the sex work industry. Same with, like, Buck and him trying to do other things, and, you know, nobody taking these guys seriously, and it, you kind of feel bad for him. I think it's almost like a sympathetic look at, you know, these they're still just, they're people. Right. I would argue those those two sequences you mentioned are doing more about sort of the perspective society has on this. Versus like what right, the, yeah. like right, right, right. Versus that particular one, I think is like a, a bit more like sort of toe in that line. But again, though, that's also very much like John Holmes. Like if right. you do any research, John Holmes, he, that's kind of what he became, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. he became a horrible, not a horrible, but he became a drug addict who, you know, had AIDS and then was involved in like the Wonderland murders and all this stuff. Like John Holmes was a very tragic figure. And unfortunately, you know, if you want, there are a lot of documentaries out there about, you know, people who are in the porn industry. Like there's, you know, there's, I think there's a series of three or four of them now, like after porn ends. And some of them are really good and poignant. And, you know, you get kind of the full range. You get people who are no longer in the industry just because they, and they don't look bad about it, but they're older now and they just want to live the life. And you get ones who like, turn to religion you get some that were fucked up on drugs because of it like it runs the whole gamut but at the same time look at normal acting 
Like you run that whole gamut too. It's just, I think the problem is where people look at it like, oh, it's sex. So it's dirty. Therefore it can't be taken. Like seriously, there's something wrong with these people. Right. That kind of prudish attitude, which was definitely emphasized, like you mentioned by like sort of the Reagan administration coming into the eighties and kind of like demonizing even further. That's what I meant to say. I just don't want the ghost of Ronald Reagan to haunt me tonight. Oh, well, oh no, (laughs) he's here. You stupid bastard. Why don't you guys cover bedtime for Bonzo as a good pick? I'm gonna tear out your throat. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this movie does a great job of emphasizing that with, like, how for some people this is, like, a phase of their lives. Like Don Cheadle, where, like, we see him hang around. We don't even see him, like, act in any of the porn movies. But he's there, and it's, like, a part. It was something that was a part of his life, but seeing him move on, and some people, like, either, like, change career paths, then they're, like, Julianne Moore becoming more of, like, a director. By the end of that, which I love seeing her kind of like take on a slightly different role or some people like return back to it like Mark Wahlberg. And it doesn't like completely down cry or praise necessarily any of those things as much as just like, I don't know, people kind of like drift through life and move through different paths. And I, I love how it emphasizes all of that, especially with, you know, like after so much harrowing stuff during that second half, like we, there's so much more we can go into, but we'll just say like the Alfred Molina scene we mentioned earlier. Amazing. Beautiful. Oh, so tense. Such a great Terrifying. scene. And so much great detail with, like, the firecrackers and the guy who was, like, got the coat on but doesn't have an undershirt and shit. Like, that's so much great detail. But, yeah, like, that scene's great. There's so much other stuff. Adam, is there anything else you want to, like, kind of mention before we go into, like, final thoughts and wrap up on Boogie Nights? Any other things you want to shout out that are so great in this movie? I mean, like I said, uh, there's so much good about it. And the thing about this movie, you know, it often, I, 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 I mean, obviously it's a, period piece but it's it feels so authentic too that's another thing that this movie really does right with the sort of wardrobe the hair design the, the cars the sets everything like you feel you are right in the middle of 1970s in the valley like this is 1970s porn in la like that era like it's so well done everything feels so correct uh it's just one of those movies where you know a lot of period movies like oh yeah yeah but you'll know maybe notice one or two things or it's so sh- shot so slick where it kind of takes you out of it like one that i can really think of is like django unchained where like it's supposed to take place in the west but it's shot so slick and everything and plus sunglasses like no those don't exist then and like it kind of takes you out of it where this one like you feel like you're right in there i will say another one of his that recently did it which i wasn't a huge fan of but like licorice pizza like, you feel like you're right in that era. And uh, I, I think Anderson's kind of a master of that. Yeah, with a lot of his other things, too. Like, There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Phantom Thread has a lot of that similar kind Which of Which I just guy. recently rewatched There Will Be Blood. I got a lot to say about that one. I don't know how I feel about it. Oh, well, well, you know, put it in a back pocket for potentially to cover for a different episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I do also want to emphasize with, like, the... some We kind of referenced it, but... I love, like, sort of Reynolds' character in terms of, like, how he treats the art of this so seriously and how he really wants to, like, say, like, oh, I want to make an actual great film within, like, the porn industry and how he, like, has those sort of collaborations with, like, Ricky Jay, who's great as the editor dude. When they're, like, looking over the the big stuff, he's just like, this is what I want to be remembered for. <laughs> and then later on, the stuff with Phil Baker Hall and about that transition to video where he's like, no, I'm not going to sully my work by doing videotape. And Philip Baker Hall's amazing reaction, just like, look, I love cinema. I love to see people fucking. <laughs> it's just so fucking good. Yeah, you know, and I, I always, I, and again, I, I don't remember the actor, but I've seen him in a hundred things. The one who comes in, he, you know, is like, may I see your cock? <laughs> and he, sh- he looks at him, he's like, 
thank you very much. And then walks off. That guy's great in this, too. Yeah, I the guy who plays the colonel. Uh, yeah, the colonel. Yeah, right. he's been in a ton of shit. Robert Wrigley. Yeah, Robert Wrigley. He's great, man. He's been in a ton of stuff. Right, yeah, and especially, like, the path that character goes down. The, the whole scene with him and Burt at the police station. Another instant point, just like, oh, everything's falling apart. Just everything's completely <laughs> destroyed at this point. Um, yeah, there's... Oh, you know what? Shout out a person who I don't think gets enough credit, but I think she's she's a great actress who doesn't have, like, a huge film career. Uh, Joanne Gleason as uh, Dirk Diggler's mother. Um, oh, she's great. Who is, like, Ter- so upsetting. Terrible. Terrible. Yes. Upsetting as fuck. What a horrible scene. Great right. scene, yeah. but horrible. Yes, uh, she's more known for Broadway, uh, including she won the Tony for Into the Woods, and that recording is one of my favorite things of her, her performing it with the original yeah, Broadway she's, cast. She's pretty great. Yes, uh, but you know what, Adam? We got a whole other movie to talk about, and there's a lot of context to that movie as well that we can go into. So, very quick final thoughts on Boogie Nights. It's one of those uh, movies that, it, you know, it stands test time. I think it all kind of always will, uh, just because how accurately it did the 70s and uh, sort of how universal the story can be in this. Uh, I, you know, most modern film buffs have probably seen this, but if you haven't, I mean, it's definitely, definitely worth your time. It's, it's just a phenomenal movie. It's damn near a perfect movie. This is easily a four to a four and a half out of five movie. Uh, it, it's just, it's fucking great. Yeah. I love it. Um, I think for a guy who's a celebrated Paul Thomas Anderson is, um, I would say this one was, while it broke him out, I think a lot of people have, uh, especially who love like some of his later movies, like There Will Be Blood and stuff, have kind of like put this one off to like, oh, it was just an early success, as opposed to, I think it's my second favorite after a movie we covered before, Punch Drunk Love, which I know Adam and I disagree on, but I think it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I think this is like right right afterward, like one of, it's like an incredibly watchable movie. It is so like enjoyable, but also like has all these like deeper contexts that we're talking about, about the porn industry and how sex work is treated in society and all this other stuff. And for the woman of the hour, it is one of the great Julianne Moore performances and one of the early, really great ones that would uh, sell her career from here on. Uh, and it's a great choice for a good pick for pretty much any of the actors in this movie. If we did a John C. Riley episode, if we did a Don Cheadle episode, um, it would be a perfect good pick for any of them. Yeah. But now, let's get into our bad pick here, Adam, of Hannibal. The person I'm looking for is quite well known. Kill 14 people that we know of. You ever think he might come after you? Well, at least 30 seconds of every day. Hello. Is this Clarice? Ah, hello, Clarice. I've been in a state of hibernation. I need some action, Clarice. I couldn't help noticing on the FBI's rather dull public website that I have been elevated to the more prestigious 10 most wanted list. Is this coincidence? Are you back on the case? You naughty girl. So uh, Hannibal is uh, from director Ridley Scott and uh, created writers David Mamet and Stephen Zalian. Uh, based on the novel by Thomas Harris, and came out February 9th, 2001, almost a decade to the day after uh, the film it's a sequel to, uh, which sounds a little lambs, so we should 
probably go into a bit of, this is part of the Hannibal Lecter franchise, Uh Uh, which previous to this, there had been Silence of the Lambs, obviously, and Manhunter, which was a different adaptation of a book that would later be adapted a year and a half after Hannibal again with Red Dragon and featuring Anthony Hopkins reprising the role of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, as he does here. And uh, we should probably talk a bit about sort of uh, our thoughts on the the Hannibal character in Silence of the Lambs and stuff like that. Uh, Adam, how do you feel about that franchise, particularly Silence of the Lambs, given uh, this is the direct sequel? Uh, well, it's funny. You know, I actually, crazy, I did a little bit of research, but not based on our topic, but I went back and watched all of the Hannibal films, except for Manhunter. Uh, I just stuck with the Anthony Hopkins ones and sort of the prequel, because um, I've seen Manhunter. So, which would be Sounds of the Lambs, Hannibal, Red Dragon, and Hannibal Rising. And Hannibal Rising, yes. And then I also rewatched the second half of season three of the TV show, which covers Red Dragon. I'm a fan. I like it. But it's also one of those where it's almost like a car crash. Like, it's gruesome. It's disturbing. It's terrible. But I got to watch it. And I always feel bad afterwards. Like, I, I think they're great movies. Well, not great movies. I think, well, Science of Lambs is great. Science of Lambs, to me, is, well, it's a horror film. I don't care what anybody says. But it is a horror film. And also, Ted Levine's one of my favorite movie villains of all time that no one really talks about i think he's so disturbing and creepy and weird but just the way that movie shot with the close-ups and everything and anthony hopkins is terrifying and i think it's just it's a kind of a masterpiece and i've read the books i i really liked the books uh particularly red dragon i think is a great book so yeah i guess i'm a fan of the hannibal lecter sort of ip it's just Am I a fan of everything we've gotten out of it? No, not necessarily. Yeah, um, I think Hannibal is fascinating as sort of like its weird franchise, uh, you know, what has been wrought of it. Because I do agree that I think Sounds of the Lambs is like a near-perfect movie to me. Um, some of the stuff we're admittingly, I think, do, people do talk about sort of the Buffalo Bill character, but it's a lot more, I think, in recent years, kind of like how that depiction sort of affected how trans people were treated. Which I get. I mean, I, 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 get, I do. I get that, too. But the only thing with me is, though, he's clearly not okay. Right. And, and, they, and they also, the movie at least tries to go to great pains to say, like, he's not a traditional trans person. Yeah, he's, time. no, he's a psychopath. They, they try, but we, it's, a, it's a messy cultural legacy that we don't necessarily have the best perspective to have on it, necessarily. I get Oh, zero. No, we have zero. No. Yeah, zero. Whatsoever. Yeah. I get it. But um, at the same time, like, I also rewatched um, all the movies that relate to Hannibal, including Manhunter. And I just think Silence of the Lambs is such a perfect movie and has, admittingly, a great setup for, like, what you would think you would want from a sequel. Where it's just like, oh, Hannibal's out and he's on the loose. But I just think every single follow-up that's happened after Silence of the Lambs uh, that isn't, like, the TV show, which I do love. I think the TV show does such a great recontextualizing of so all the stories. Great. It's so fucking great. amazing show. Yes, for sure. Um, but I think the movies that followed just have this weird thing where they try and kind of apply the sort of natural horror franchise mentality of like, oh, we start to like kind of get invested in the villain, like in the way that like Freddy Krueger becomes more invested in the sequels after Nightmare on Elm Street. But I don't think that works for Hannibal as a character. And I think that's a detriment, especially with uh, Hannibal 2001, the film, I think does such a weird attempt at like making him more of like kind of like it's a movie that knows the iconic sort of legacy of Silence of the Lambs like a decade after and I think that's totally to the movie's detriment and also to the character's detriment I completely agree they they try to turn him into this sort of 
Well, A, making him and Clarice have almost like a romantic angle. Which, to be fair, the book did a lot worse of a job of, from what I've heard, with like the ending of that, of Hannibal, the 1999 book. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I've heard is like, oh, that would have been a way worse ending than this ending, the kind of rushed bad ending that we did. It definitely would have been. Yeah, yeah, But I I think that A is a huge problem, uh, because I don't think, not necessarily, you should never humanize Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter works as this sort of entity, where if once you start putting on, I think that's one of the biggest problems with sort of Hannibal Rising and all that too, where you're like, I, no, no, I don't want to feel sympathy for this guy. I think Hannibal Lecter as a character works best as this sort of muted down psychopath, cannibal, serial killer. He's a serial killer. I don't want to see like, well, this is why he's a serial killer. I don't need that. I understand that happens Sometimes in society with serial killers, but also sometimes in society with serial killers, they're just fucking crazy. Like, nurture versus nature, I understand the idea of that, but that's not always the case. Right. Hannibal feels a bit more, like, to contrast with, like, in Silence of the Lambs, what I love so much is that Buffalo Bill feels more like the garden variety sort of serial killer. Yeah. In terms of, like, it feels like somebody who would actually exist has some kind of, like, basis in reality. And then... Hannibal Lecter is like they captured Satan in a box briefly. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's there uh-huh. in that box, and Jodie Foster as Chloe Starling encounters him and has brief glimpses of him. But it's like she can't even stay near him for too long because like she'll be wrapped up in his demonic grasp if she's around too long. And then when he escapes, it's just like, well, he's out there. Like you can capture a Buffalo Bill, but you can never contain the true evil of Hannibal for too long. His dark as eyes. Black eyes, like a dial's eyes. Um, (laughs) I love that quote from Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) Yeah, but no, the thing is, and obviously, honestly, what I think works best about Silence of the Lambs, and even though Red Dragon is very flawed, uh, but the television show I'd include in this too is works best where Hannibal's not the main foil. You need the sort of Buffalo Bills or the Francis Dorlehides or, you know, some of these other characters, other, like, sort of serial killers you get in the show. That's what you need. Right, and this movie tries to have that. Not really. I mean, they kind of do with the Mason Verger character. Yeah, I would argue they were trying to do that with Mason Verger. Which, by the way, though, I will say, pretty great performance from Gary Oldman. I think it's great makeup. I would not say it's necessarily a great performance. I, but, I mean, I have, like, so many issues. I guess that's fair. Right, right, because I mean, because this is the character obviously where um, they set him up as like he and Hannibal had an encounter, and which he uh, fed him drugs and eventually caused him to like cut off his face while he was on drugs, Um, and he's this gay pedophile. I think this one is more of like a malicious example of like a queer villain than like a Buffalo Bill to me, because he's so much more. Explicitly, like, awful, and especially, like, the encounter that they have in that really weird, like, bad Shutterstock filming of it's whatever really, they do. Yeah, like, it's really bad. Oh, it's face. really bad. Um, yeah. And it feels like, because they emphasize it's like, oh, it's almost like he and Hannibal were about to have, like, almost a romantic encounter, and then the poppers came in, and then they, like, cut off his face. It feels just like we're going full on to, like, oh, not only is he an awful pedophile piece of shit, but he's also gay, so he's bad news. It just feels, like, so disgusting and offensive to me. I, no, I definitely agree, but it also, you know, where the fact like, oh, he turned state's evidence or he became a witness, so that's why he's not in jail. And, and unfortunately, that happens too. You know, where this fucking, yeah, no, he's a, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I will say, though, I really like Giancarlo Giannini in this movie. 
as the inspector. I think he's fucking great. I think he's a cool kind of new character that I feel if they would have maybe done a little bit more with him instead of relying on all of Clarice, I think you'd add a little bit more excitement to the movie. Where it's his aging inspector at the end of his career and he's got this beautiful young wife that it's hard to keep her like sort of happy, he thinks, but clearly she's fine. And like it's just it I think it could be a lot more fun. I don't I think the biggest problem with this movie is and the story too, the book, is the reintroduction of Starling. I don't think you need it. No, especially not helped by total character assassination for Clarice Starling. After 100%. I I love so much, obviously, like the Clarice in the original movie played by uh, Jodie Foster is so amazing. I think she, uh, despite winning, like being one of the many people who won Oscars for that movie, she feels like sort of the one that doesn't get as much of like the cultural sort of stamps. And uh-huh. it's such a shame because I think she's just as important like any of the like uh, fava beans and ice Chianti stuff from Anthony Hopkins. Just as important is just the way Jodie Foster says, Dr. Lecter. I agree. Dr. Lecter. It's so 100%. key. And... Julia Moore is our woman of the hour is treated such an unfair hand where it's like, Hey, follow up this amazing performance that won an Oscar, but also you have to make the character your own kind of, but also we're turning this character into a hothead FBI idiot agent. Yeah. You're going to be an action hero right in the beginning. I hate that sequence, by the way. I That's fucking hate it. <laughs> so that bad. Kills, it kills the character right away. Yes. There's no way watching science of lambs and the clear starring character did she go from this being this FBI analyst and, you know, almost like into psychotherapy and psychiatry become an agent in the field killing, like, Guanian drug dealers? Like, what is happening? In the original movie, it's such a great dynamic of her, like, still being in training and very fresh. And so she doesn't have as much field experience, but she is clearly intelligent and thinks about these cases so wonderfully. Like, there's that mixture of, like, unpreparedness, but also clear preparedness as much as she yeah, can. Well, yeah, it's like naivety. It's like a new eye. On things. Right. She's not jaded. Yes. Right. As opposed to, like, the jadedness is just done through, like, oh, you're a bad agent. You're, like, a yeah. terrible agent who should not be in the field because you're yeah. doing brash, dumb decisions that, like, get people killed. Because you're fucking reckless as hell. Right. Exactly. Right. She becomes, like, the typical loose cannon cop. Just like, all right, Clarice, you're off the force. They literally do that at a certain point. It's just, like, you're on suspension. <laughs> but god damn it, we need Sterling. <laughs> like, it's so fucking dumb. It's so dumb. And then the whole shit that they do, like, don't get me wrong, I, you know, the sort of cross character with, you know, where it was Glenn, Scott Glenn in the first one, and they became Harvey Gattel and Red Dragon or whatever, and then um, obviously Lawrence Fishburne and Hannibal. They, they take that character away and they give you the Ray Liotta character. Is hates her because she rebuked his sort of advances. Yeah, who feels the most, like, from, I mentioned earlier, David Mamet wrote an original screenplay for this that apparently everyone hated, and Steve Zalian, like, hastily rewrote. Um, He feels like the biggest lingering threat of a David Mamet thing, where he feels very much like a bad David Mamet character. Yeah, there's no question. (laughs) For sure. Though, credit to Leota, um, I think he embraces it in a way that at least is, like, he's pretty, like, a solid supporting character, and then the ending thing with him, his brain getting eaten... It's probably the highlight of the movie for me, is his performance during that whole thing. He's so fucking great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the best part of the movie. I completely agree. But then, I guess my problem is, too, you know, we're getting to the ending here a little bit. With the whole brain anything, like, that's disturbing. You know, and then Hannibal cuts his own hand off or whatever. But then, so, this character that they're trying to make you almost feel sympathy for the whole movie. Or you, oh, I want him to get away, Hannibal Lecter. Then he feeds the brain to a kid. 
it just makes it like the ultimate evil again. Like this isn't earned. Well, well, even before that, you have all the stuff like during that sequence where he has drugged uh, Clarice and has like a horrible forced kiss with her during that yeah, whole pretty, sequence. Man, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Like and all this other stuff too, where like before this point, you have like all the stuff in Italy is like I think the closest they get to making them kind of like a fun anti-hero in a way that I think betrays the character, but that's at least the most of it feels kind of like fun. He's, he's kind of scary in, in Italy. And he's still kind of contained because he's like trying to like fit into society, but he still is like occasionally able to do like fun bursts of just like, oh, look here, I'm going to like flay your fucking organs and shit like that. It's like, that's a bit more like Grand Guignol fun. Stabs that pickpocket in the groin and bleeds him out. Yes. You know, that type right. of shit. You're like, holy fuck. I swear, once he leaves Italy, though, and you get Starling more involved, then it, the movie just sort of teeters down and becomes just, I don't want to say cliche, because I don't think that's accurate, but it loses me pretty quick. The whole sequence where, like, he leads her to the mall, and he's, like, yeah, around he's on the carousel and shit. Yeah, it's right, so like, dumb. Clarice, you were so warm. He was so yeah. warm. Just, like, mm-hmm. it feels so much more, like we mentioned, like, the, he, they, that is where they are turning him into, like, a Freddy Krueger character. Yeah. In a way that just feels, like, detrimental to, like, that hidden menace that you had that was just, like, oh, my God, he's, like, contained. What can he do? When he's out and about, he's so much less interesting as a character. I completely agree. Because it just feels like, oh, like, he can be, like, around every corner. He's, like, a boogeyman that pops up. It's, like, no. he's You should be, like, this evil that burrows under your skin but shouldn't mm-hmm. be just like boom I'm gonna pop out scare you it's like no this isn't the Halloween Horror Nights house it's fucking Hannibal Lecter man <laughs> right, right are you worried what your mommy and daddy would think of you Why? what is this stop stop yeah and he's wearing like a tactical jacket and hat like, this is so stupid like what is <laughs> happening here and he lets himself get caught to like save her like it's just it's so dumb it's so dumb and the thing is, I guess one of my biggest problems with it is that you're sort of led to believe in the beginning half of this movie and all of Science Lamb that he is like the smartest man alive. He's impervious to psychoanalysis. He can literally talk someone to swallowing their own tongue. Like he's just the smartest man. He's ahead of everyone. And this, just dumb decisions the whole movie. Like you're going to kill Benini and then throw him over the balcony, but then allow yourself to be shown on footage and wave to the camera. Really? No. No, 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 no. I think a big part of that also is just Anthony Hopkins at this point in his career after, like, Silence of the Lambs kind of, like, rejuvenized his career because he was kind of, like, on the outs as, like, a character actor sort of type before mm-hmm. that, not doing a lot. And then Silence of the Lambs, obviously, won his Oscar and he became so in demand. Deserved. Right. Totally deserved. Uh, but after that point, he definitely turned from Silence of the Lambs to Noise of the Hams, which I would argue this movie should be titled. Because mm-hmm. he is, like, yeah, fully yeah. going into, he fully went into, like, very hammy, over-the-top performances, taking as many paychecks as possible. Like, this is right after Mission Impossible 2, where he's in, like, five minutes and got, like, I think $3 million off of it, <laughs> and shit like that. Um, it, right. Like, and it just, like, he's in full, like, sort of hammy mode, which sometimes is kind of fun, but largely is very, like, much what leads into the detrimental kind of treatment of Hannibal from here on. Would you say you like this performance of Hannibal Lecter better than the performance in Red Dragon? Um, I would at least say, I think Red Dragon, it works a bit more just because at least it's the structure of the story works fine, and it feels a bit more in keeping with, like, the sort of Silence of the Lambs portrayal of just, like, him being contained. But yeah. also, I mean, there, there are other problems with that movie that we'll, we'll get into problems. now, but... 
particularly just like, hey, how about, hey, Brett Ratner, how about you try and recreate what Jonathan Demi did in so many scenes? And it's like, no, he can't do it. <laughs> uh, no, I think the biggest problem with uh, Red Dragon, it's clearly like Anthony Hopkins 30 years later. <laughs> like, he doesn't, there's no way. Yeah, it's a prequel. Well, I mean, sadly, only like 11 years later. Because like I said, Hannibal came out February 2001 and Red Dragon came out October 2002. So it's only like 18 months after this movie, basically. And he does look much older even than 11 years. But they're trying to sell us on like, oh no, the lead up to this is right before Silence of the Lambs. There's a lady here to see you from the FBI, Hannibal. Oh, fuck off. Fuck off with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with you. You know, but the thing about this movie is, I don't hate it. This is one of those that I, I, I genuinely don't hate. Every time I've seen it, which I haven't seen it that many times, but I've never, like, disappointed. I think it's stupid. But I remember, like, oh, God. Like, it's okay. Uh, Red Dragon. Uh, Brett Reiner. Uh, but, um, like, even, like, Hannibal Rising. Hannibal Rising is terrible. That is worse, I would agree, than this one necessarily is. Yeah. It's 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 bad. No shame. Well, you know, Gaspar Diulio, R.I.P. But uh, he's miscast, woefully miscast, and sort of everybody else is miscast. Nobody in that movie. I mean, it's it's a dumb story. That's... It's a very dumb story. Basically, Hannibal is Batman. You know, that's kind yeah, of what they're trying to give him like a Batman Begins origin story. It's yeah, really like, no, no, no. Hannibal Lecter doesn't know how to fight like a samurai. Right. What is happening? Oh my! Yeah, he studied the blade at him. It's so fucking <laughs> but, stupid. Uh, but no, I think I agree that all that stuff's stupid. But I think Hannibal, while like I'll say I loathe this movie. I think when I initially saw it, now I don't necessarily hate it but it has too many big massive detrimental problems for me to like ever say that i think it's okay or fine not just with like to silence the lambs but even just on the movie's own terms like we haven't mentioned much about really scott's direction i hate how this movie looks it has this like really dull washed out sort of look of like the early 2000s in a way that like while i was watching this i just felt like i would have way preferred tony scott's hannibal i think that would have been better yeah i think you get bursts of cool shots in this movie but for the most part i agree it's very bland you know some of the ones i think like you know even hannibal like with the where he pulls out the blade and the, the light of the blades on his face he's got that crazy smile really cool scene like he looks great uh there's a couple cool moments as far as the way it looks but for the most part yeah it's gray and bland like it doesn't feel like anything but yeah if you would have got like a man on fire tony scott to do this Fuck yeah, give me that movie. Yeah, um, and then, you know, I think that's even, like, that's also obviously a problem with, like, Red Dragon, where it's Brett Ratner trying to both oh, recreate him. scenes from Manhunter horribly, um, and then also sort of try and create, like, a David Fincher-esque crime thriller and doing it, like, as half-assed dime store as possible. Well, because he's terrible. He's a terrible director. Terrible, um, yeah, terrible human, terrible director. Completely yeah, agree. I mean, we he's never, yeah, that'd be good. Fuck him. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. for sure. Um... Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, the, the Manhunter, say what you will, I, you know, obviously, I like the director. Yeah, it's a great movie, right? We're both in agreement. It's a great, awesome movie that's so awesome. Uh, Science of Lambs, even, to me, even better. I love Science of Lambs. Yeah. And then I feel like it's a natural sort of progression down after Science of Lambs. I don't know. I, I, I honestly think Hannibal and Red Dragon are probably neck and neck 
for me. I, I have equal problems with both. Um, but it's just kind of a natural progression down. It, it's just, it's a franchise that obviously with the TV show, great, but I don't need to see anymore. Like I'm good. And to get on the Julianne Moore of it, I guess, obviously you could tell we haven't been talking about it that much because she's kind of a non-entity. Yeah. Like she really doesn't matter in this story. Like she only matters just to get Hannibal Lecter to, from A to B. That's the only reason. Right, and, and she spends so much of the movie, like, in those, like, crime labs and listening to the Yeah, on the phone. Which I'm so fucking angry that they had to uh, be gall to recreate the audio recordings and have her do, like, the Jodie Foster stuff. Just like, fuck you. How dare you do that? I completely agree. Just play his parts. You don't need to hear her then. Or, or don't even do that. Have Clarice do something more interesting. It. Just listen to, like, remember uh, this know, when I did this I a know. decade ago. Just what it after. Yeah. Right, you can see why, like, the only person who agreed to come back was uh, Anthony Hopkins, because he got a massive payday. Because, like, they offered it to Demi, Foster, and Ted Talley, who adapted the screenplay uh, for um, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, excuse me, Frankie Faison. Oh, that's true. Yes, of course. Um... <laughs> So so vital with uh, with like what pisses me off like right at the start is him like selling the memorabilia. It's like look, it's the mask, and it's like n- no person in universe would give a shit about that mask. No, right, exactly. Right away, you're like, oh, nostalgia, baby. Holy shit! I mean, this movie tags you with it right in the opening. Yeah, that, that, I think that's the problem where, like, I would say this is, like, slightly more detrimental to me than even, like, a Red Dragon, where Red Dragon at least functions as, like, the story that was uh, from, like I said, like, a Manhunter in the original book. At least it's, like, functional, as opposed to this movie has, like, such a distorted, weird story that has, like, too much, but also too little happening at the same time, and so weirdly structured that it just, like, annoys me a lot more, as opposed to at least Red Dragon, while it also is guilty of doing Silence of the Lambs references, at least has, like, enough of a structure to work, um, and also has, I would argue, uh, a better supporting cast uh, that's able to le- strengthen up, say, maybe the most bored Edward Norton has ever looked in a movie. He is yeah, so for sure. down that fucking But you movie. get Keitel, you get Hoffman... Yes. You get yeah. There's there's a pretty fine Emily Watson. Cast. There's a lot of like good performers yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I guess I have to agree. This is one of those where every time I've seen it, and it's not very often. Like maybe every couple of years I've seen this, I forget a lot of the shit in it. So it leaves no impression on me, which is bad. That's not good. But where Hannibal Rising, I, I remember the bad shit in that Red Dragon well red dragon unfortunately because of the brett ratner of it all but like this one is just kind of like a blank spot every time i see it yeah i remember a lot more of the bad shit in this one uh i think it's it works out where hannibal rising can be the worst one and very bad but i don't think that excludes like by comparison i don't think that makes hannibal look that much better quite frankly it's it is guilty of many of the same flaws it just has the benefit of better actors and at least a better director and like some of that stuff that makes it i would argue slightly above the bottom it's not too far off from the bottom (laughs) to me fair enough um but yeah i think we've talked about this movie a lot let's go ahead and like wrap up any final thoughts adam about hannibal it's not the best of the sequels but is it better than red dragon i don't know uh it's certainly not better than the last one and it's certainly not better than television show I would argue that is the best follow-up to Science of Lambs we've gotten, whereas it's, I mean, it's a prequel, 100%, but it's 
like the better version that we needed. I I don't think we need a continuation of Lecter, you know, Spot and Chilton coming off the airplane that we get at the end of Science of Lambs. I don't need to know where these characters go from there. Uh, where they came from, sure. Uh, Hannibal Rising did that very poorly, uh, but the Hannibal TV show, fucking brilliant, perfect. And Milkinson, if you're not going to get Hopkins, Milkinson is Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, um, I would say the TV show, Silence of the Lambs, and Manhunter are the only Hannibal thing you should give a shit about. Because as much as I'm saying, like, oh, Red Dragon's slightly better than Hannibal is, um, it's like a massive drop-off between, I would argue, Manhunter and Red Dragon. And then Hannibal isn't too far behind a Red Dragon, necessarily. I think those three sort of follow-up sequels, prequels to Silence of the Lambs are... Movies that, like, whatever we're saying, like, oh, like, there's some elements that work, some things that don't, they just sort of, they're key examples of, like, why Hannibal shouldn't be, like, a massive continuing franchise. Despite, in Hannibal, like, some interesting stuff, some compelling, like, uh, you know, elements, like, some performance stuff, some of the stuff in Italy, like I mentioned, there's a couple, like, kind of bright spots. It is exactly the kind of problem with sequelization that, like, we complain about a lot. It has, like, so many of those massive problems that, uh, you know, just, I would recommend, if you're curious about any of these movies, I'd just say stick with Sounds of the Lambs and Manhunter and then go to the TV show. I think those are the only good things, quite frankly. Yeah, I can't disagree. Except on Manhunter, which I would like to Well, man, hey, yeah, man, I guess I don't like William Peterson. I really don't. Far more interesting than Edward Norton is in that movie. That well, especially with his perm. Especially with his man perm. Yeah. I think it, gr- it works great. Along yeah, with everything well, else about that movie, yeah. pretty much. But yeah, that's a discussion yeah. for another day. Because uh, we're done talking about our double feature here. And now we're moving on to our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. So the Double Redo is a segment we do uh, every week in which Adam and I bring up a good and a bad feature related to the topic. So this week for Julianne Moore, each of us have a good movie we'd recommend to everybody out there and a bad one we'd recommend you steer clear of. Uh, I'm going first here and uh, I'm going to go ahead and start off with my good pick for Julianne Moore is uh, one of her nominated performances, which I hadn't seen until uh, doing the research for this episode. And uh, I'd heard at least a lot about The Hours uh, from 2002, uh, which is this interesting sort of uh, like trinity of the big Oscar actresses of like that sort of like 90s into 2000s era. So in The Hours, we follow three different timelines. Uh, we follow first uh, 1923, where we have uh, Virginia Woolf, the, the real author, uh, played by Nicole Kidman in an, her Oscar-winning turn. Um, then uh, in 1951, we follow uh, Laura Brown, as played by Julianne Moore. And then in 2001, we follow uh, Clarissa Vaughn, played by Meryl Streep. Um, and basically how their various storylines kind of intertwine to some degree, where Virginia Woolf is like, out of her uh, normal London at, like, a a home uh, in the country that she's kind of been sequestered off to after she's had some issues with uh, suicide attempts and stuff, and her husband's kind of keeping her over there. Then in the 50s, uh, one with 1951 storyline with Laura Brown, it's a lot about her being sort of, like, the the dissatisfied uh, 50s housewife. Um, And then in 2001, we have uh, Clarissa Vaughn uh, with Meryl Streep, where she plays this uh, celebrated publisher um, who is trying to 
uh, make things work with uh, both her lover, played by Allison Janney, and uh, her ex-lover, played by uh, Ed Harris, um, where he, she's trying to hold like a big party for him as he's being honored, but he's dying of AIDS uh, while uh, she's trying to balance her whole life uh, with that point. And I think it's an interesting parallel sort of story movie where like these storylines interweave with each other. We like cut back and forth between them. And I was curious because I had like, you know, three powerhouse talents like that and so many other great actors in there. I was so curious to see it. But I was worried, like, is it going to be sort of like a forgotten Oscar movie? that I can see Kyle White's forgotten, kind of like I mentioned with the end of the affair earlier in the episode. But I was so compelled by not just each of these storylines and each of these actresses doing great work, but how these sort of intertwine, whether it be thematically or in some cases like actual storylines kind of like crossover where I won't spoil the stuff with how um, some of them intertwine like very much with characters and stuff. But I think all of those like main actresses and so many other great supporting people in here, like Claire Dane shows up, Jeff Daniels, John C. Riley, as you mentioned previously, uh, Miranda Richardson, so many great like people in this cast, but it's such like a great example of like what I love with like sort of these different timeline movies where you see sort of like all these recurring thematic trends and eventually how they all wrap up together, I think is so beautifully done. And despite Nicole Kidman winning for Virginia Woolf, which I think it's a very good performance from her. I would say it's not quite as strong to me as the work that Streep does, which I think she's obviously amazing in here, and like her chemistry off with like Allison Janney and Ed Harris is wonderful in the movie. But Julianne Moore kind of feels like the great linchpin of this movie, and you don't quite realize it as like the story goes along. You learn more and more about her character and her sort of like a great version of kind of like the satisfied um, you know, 50s housewife, which she had done even just this year, also not really for Far From Heaven, which I think is another great performance from her. But this one feels a bit more kind of like grounded in a certain reality that's very tragic. And especially when you find out what she kind of does near the end of the movie, uh, I think it's like it's heartbreaking, but at the same time you get why she necessarily would have done this. Uh, the decisions that she makes because you understand her character so fully. Um, I think it's a tremendous movie that I wish, you know, kind of got a bit more love in the modern era. And then my bad pick is one I've talked about in passing previously when we talked about uh, Monuments Men uh, in terms of the that one was directed by George Clooney and was a pretty bad movie we didn't like on the show. But I would argue his worst directorial effort and just one of the worst big sort of like attempted Oscar hopefuls that failed miserably in recent history is Suburbicon, which was this weird Frankenstein movie that basically involves two different scripts that were melded together. There's one section that is made written by the Coen brothers uh, that was about Matt Damon playing this uh, 50s suburban dad who ends up getting caught up in a horrible sort of like death of his wife, um, who is played by Julianne Moore. Um, that like like a horrible like death situation that goes wrong and him kind of covering up elements of that and then when uh, Julianne Moore plays the wife's twin sister who comes to live with the family for a bit um, it's this like very sort of poor attempt at like kind of like a Hitchcockian thriller with like elements of like vertigo and some of these other things that also is trying to be a bit satiric that doesn't work for me and then in the background of all this there is this actual like based on a true story sort of subplot in which the neighbors next door to Matt Damon and his family um, are this black family that moves into an all-white suburb and becomes the sort of target of racism of the time. That's deeply upsetting. But the problem is they're background characters, and that true story is paid lip service to be like the distraction that keeps the neighborhood from focusing on this dumb murder mystery plot that's going on. And it is such a miscalculation tonally, 
And I think it's some of the worst performances from all these people involved, including even Miss Moore, who I think is very much sort of misguided around. Uh, Damon's pretty bad. And there's a lot of like poor use of great actors in this movie, uh, except for, I would say, Oscar Isaac's the highlight, who pops in as like this guy who's kind of like inspecting about the house and about the murder. And I think is like the one bright spot in a very bad movie. Um, it's a big fucking mess. And I get why it was decried at the time and forgotten because uh, it's really fucking terrible. Okay, so I've seen The Hours once uh, when it was nominated. And I remember at the time, it's like, okay, it just wasn't a movie at that era that I would have been into. It's one that I've kind of wanted to go back to, especially watch it maybe with my wife or someone like that. I, I think we could get enjoyment out of it, but just one I've never revisited. But I, I, I definitely want to. It's not one that ever comes up. I'm like, oh, what do you want to watch tonight? The Hours is not one that I ever think of um, for date night. As far as the bad, uh, Suburbicon, never seen it. I'm barely aware of its existence. Like, even you subscribing, I'm like, I think I remember the title card. Like, what the poster might have looked like. Uh, but it was one that I had no interest in. And just hearing you describe it, oh, God, I am totally good. No interest. Well, Adam, what about your choices for the double review this week? For my good choice, uh, another movie directed uh, by uh, the director of our good film tonight, uh, Anderson's Magnolia. Uh, another just amazing ensemble cast. Amazing performances all around. Julia Moore is fucking great in it. Uh, but this is another one like you kind of pointedly said at the end of our discussion of Boogie Nights, where there's so many actors that if they came up and you said, oh, pick them a good choice for them, like, they would work. Like, I'd argue Tom Cruise might be the best Tom Cruise. Uh, it, it's just, it's a really great movie. Disturbing. Sad. But kind of funny, too. Like, there's just, the Magnolia is this weird entity. Uh, and I kind of love it. And she is really great in it. And then for my bad, I have uh, Kingsman The Golden Circle which is a sequel to a movie that I kind of liked. Uh, nobody wanted a sequel. Nobody definitely wanted a prequel. And uh, it's really bad. And Julia Moore is making choices, like we talked about earlier, making a lot of them. But she feels terribly miscast and uh, sort of just a stupid movie and a stupid plot and a stupid fucking cash-in. Like, even the Alan John stuff is so dumb. Like, it's just a dumb, dumb movie. And she might be the brightest spot in a black hole. Uh, so nothing. Um, it, it just, it doesn't work on every level. Yeah, um, I've seen both of your choices. Um, Kings from the Golden Circle, I mean, yeah, I don't have much more to say beyond like what you've said. Except I'll at least add that like, I think Julianne Moore is trying to have fun as like a satiric version of a Bond villain. Which I would think in other circumstances that sounds like a fun time and a great opportunity for Julianne Moore to like have like sort of a hammy part uh, that she doesn't usually get to have. But uh, that movie just suffers so much from repeating a lot of jokes from the first movie and also doubling down on like all the worst elements that I didn't like about Kingsman. Um, just removing any of the charm that was kind of there that I still think is a bit there in the original movie. Not nearly as much as when I first saw it necessarily. Um, and then... Uh, for your good pick, Magnolia, that was interesting where that was one when I saw it initially after like being getting into PTA and like really loving Boogie Nights. That was the one that I heard like, oh my God, it's like his best movie. So amazing at that particular point, like in the early 2000s. And I was not a huge fan of it at the time when I was younger. I thought just like, oh, this is a bit overrated as a movie. And then I revisited it about like a year or two ago. I was just, you know, I need to finally sit down and 
watch all three hours and 15 minutes of Magnolia again. I had a much better opinion of it. I think it does juggle a lot of its storylines very well. I think it has a great ensemble. As you mentioned, I would agree that Cruz is amazing, but also like Philip Seymour Hoffman is, and obviously Moore is, and especially in the sequence at the pharmacy is a tour de force performance from her. Her big rant about just like, do you know who I fucking am? Such a good, like, bit. Such an amazing performance from her. Um, And, yeah, I think it's not my favorite PTA movie, but I would say it's definitely amongst, like, his top five for sure. Yeah! But yeah, let's go ahead and wrap up here uh, our double review by repeating our choices. Uh, I'll go first with uh, my good choice was The Hours, and my bad choice was Suburbicon. And my good choice was Magnolia, and my bad choice is Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Yeah, so we're going to start wrapping up the show here, but stay tuned. At the very end, we'll pick our movies for next episode. But uh, before that, we got to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thorlally for our great artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water, that's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for on various socials for all his amazing stuff. And thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon supporters uh, who, you know, for the $1 you all get to do stuff uh, like um, vote in polls for uh, topics and in individual movies we do. Like this particular episode was chosen, as I mentioned, by our patrons. So thank you so much, Edgelords, as we like to call you out there, our little pet name for you. And uh, we also get the bonus podcast stuff, which we should mention uh, right now. You can listen to our Friday the 13th audio commentary. And on that, we announce what we're going to be doing for February which is going to be a lot of fun, where we are introducing our award show, our first annual Double Edge of award show, dubbed what, Adam? The Dubs. D-U-B-Z. I kind of want to call it D-U-B-B-Z, but D-U-B-Z, tentatively. The Dubs. Yes, we intentionally picked a name that, you know, the if an actor... Name. The, the stupidest, stupidest name. to where, like, if we actually send a physical award to any of our winners, they would just be like, the dubs what is this throw it in the trash yeah we can't afford to do that anyways <laughs> no we can for sure we'll send them an email just like oh you get this <laughs> all right by the way buddy you got a dubs these two idiots like you <laughs> steven at gmail.com here you go <laughs> john hirsch actor of the year <laughs> every year <laughs> no matter what, even if it wasn't in the movie. No matter what. Anderson. The Judd annual Judd Hirsch Award goes to Judd Hirsch. <laughs> this uh, year, the but... annual Judd Hirsch Award goes to Judd Hirsch. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so for the $1 a month, you get uh, all that bonus stuff. So if you're interested, please sign up. It helps out the show. Keeps the lights on and everything. But... Uh, if you want to, you know, follow us on uh, various socials, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also submit feedback to us at our email, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out there. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at both uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And just a shout-out um, on my blog, where I often post episodes of the show. It's been a while since I've written anything. And I just recently posted up, finally, after, you know, racking my brain and a bit of delay, my top 20 films of 2022, which you can read over there. Put a lot of uh, heart and soul into that particular list. And, uh, you know, give it a read if you're curious about what I the, the big movies of the year. Though keep in mind, for the dubs, 
those choices. You know, there's a lot more stuff with like actor, actress, international film. A lot more uh, interesting qualifier. Anything can change before the dubs happen. Yeah, his number one is Marmaduke. Yes, of course. Yeah, Pete Pete Davidson, my favorite performance of the year. Dub yep. spoilers. Yeah, best leading actor. Find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam A T O M underscore or R underscore A D A M. You can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. And I also recently did a guest spot on front of the show. Uh, good guy Rafe Telsch have not seen this podcast uh, where we talked about one of my favorite movies that nobody knows about. Uh, we talked about the John Hillcoat weird Australian Western, uh, the proposition. Although I will say uh, <laughs> I, I do make a comment about a certain actress that I wish was edited out. Uh, I wish it wasn't in there, but it is. Uh, so uh, you can be mad at me if you want, but I, you know, I regret it. But that's fine. Great movie. Maybe you should give an apology right now, because I'm sure she's listening here. Give a straight up apology to to our the, that actress. She's not listening. No, in the ether. Give it to her, just for, for posterity's Maggie sake. Maggie Gyllenhaal, I don't think you look like a shoe. There. Yes. He's sorry. Um, but yes, I did listen to that Proposition episode, and aside from that comment, lots of fun in there. A lot of entertaining stuff in that episode. Really fun. I love, uh, you know, I'm glad that Rafe has that show back up. He just relaunched it. And you're the second episode of that. And I hope he uh, keeps it up at a decently consistent level in the future because he's a great podcaster. In his own he's fucking awesome. I love Rafe. Uh, but uh, for more of this podcast, uh, subscribe to us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network uh, that several uh, people have guested on the show, are the main hosts of. And you can also dig into the archives on our Podbean main feed for over like 200 episodes before we join Talk Film Society. Anything else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that one dollar, you know, can be a lot for some people. We totally get it. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. Yeah. Just, I mean, what the fuck? Just make it happen, guys. You know, especially you, Rafe. I know I said I love you, but I lied. I hate you. <laughs> Remember when I said I loved you? I lied. It was a lie. Well... Now, Adam, it's time we end this episode by doing our picking for next week. Uh, so as, as we do at the end of every episode, Adam and I switch up on quality for uh, one of us has two good picks, one of us has two bad picks, and we assign them between one and ten for each of those choices for next week's topic. And uh, the other person will uh, pick a number between one and ten, and we'll say, so, for example, uh, I'm going to pick number nine, and the other person who has the choices will be like, okay, at number 10, I had this particular choice. So that's how we get our good and our bad feature. Though, we have to keep in mind, of course, uh, the Godfather rule is still in effect, which basically Adam and I were given vetoes back in May to use if uh, we hear a particular choice uh, and we say, actually, I, I don't want to cover that choice, so I'll take the cannoli. Uh, we have one opportunity to say that each year. Uh, so it'll be like, okay, uh, you take the cannoli. So that choice is gone. We gotta go with whatever other choice is there for either the good or bad pick. And uh, I've used mine already. Adam has his. He has until May to use it, because then it's gone. Yep. yep. So he might do that for uh, my good picks that I have for next week's topic, which is Bottle Films, in honor of uh, Knock at the Cabin, is coming out, the new M. Night Shyamalan film. That I'm very curious about, uh, and the sort of premise of that movie is that it all takes place in one singular location of the titular cabin. Uh, so we decided to do the Bottle Movies episode to basically have the same thing, which is like, okay, movies that take place in one singular location. What do you think is an interesting challenge for movies to do? Oh, I agree. Uh, to the point where we had to open up a little bit. 
uh, instead of, you know, when you might think of bottle films, you might think of one room or one small area. We opened it up to one location to where, like, an airplane could work or apartment building or something like that, but it's still in the one singular location. Uh, so, yeah, I have the two good for this. As I mentioned, you have the two bad, Adam. So uh, you go ahead and go first, please, for my two good picks. Pick a number between one and ten. Uh, we'll go with number one. At number three, I have a movie that... Um, I know I've already seen with Adam previously, and we kind of agreed, like, after we watched it, like, we have to cover this movie at some particular point. Um, It mostly does take place at one location, though. It's a pretty big, spacious location of a motel, and I think it's a criminally underrated movie that I can't wait to talk about with Adam. It is Bad Times at the El Royale. Fuck yeah. Ooh, I didn't even expect that. Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, we're definitely talking about that. Oh, I can't wait to rewatch that. That's one of the ones that I've seen recently that, you know, some of them are like, eh, I've seen it. No, I, I want to rewatch that. I'm good. Yeah, fuck yeah. I yeah, we'll have a lot to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Um, but on the other side of things, I had an older film that uh, I actually watched recently for Halloween. Um, over at number 10, I have the sort of a horror thriller starring a very odd cast of Audrey Hepburn and Alan Arkin Way Until oh, Dark. That's an interesting one. I haven't seen that in forever. I remember really kind of being plus on that one. So that's a good one too. I think it's a wonderful right. little movie for sure, yes. Uh, but at the same time, I'm very happy with Bad Times of the El Royale. Now Adam, speaking of bad, let's see yeah, about your choices. Um, I'll go ahead and go the opposite route of you. I'm going to pick number eight. Okay, at number nine. And by the way, both of my... Uh, Entries start with a P. Popping my peas. Pop. Popping my peas. Uh, at number eight, I have, uh, which everybody thought was going to be successful because you had two amazing, like, hot young actors, and it's not good, and it's a lot of moral problems with it. I have the Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence, Passengers. Heard a lot about Passengers. I've avoided Passengers. Well, no, cho- no choice now. <laughs> But what was your other choice? Number two, I had the 2006 Solace remake of a classic disaster film, Poseidon. I have seen Poseidon. Not a fan. The original Poseidon Adventure, a flawed but pretty good of like the disaster movies of that era. Yes, yeah, a fun, it's fun. Movie, Yes, yeah. Unlike the Wolfgang Peterson uh, disaster, yeah, both figuratively and literally at the box office film mm-hmm. of Poseidon. <laughs> yes. All right, but so, Passengers and Bad Times of the Hour. Bad Times of the Hour, Hell yeah. We'll be doing both of those next week. But until then, everybody, uh, we have to go because we're having an old friend for dinner. His name is Rafe Telsch. He tastes like shitty jerky. I I think he tastes like completely fine, edible jerky. No, no, no. It's bad like Jack Links. Like the worst Jack Links. (laughs) 